Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. College football has crowned its national champion, and the NFL playoffs are picking up steam. We'll get into all of that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 50 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you did miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial Wednesday broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can always call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, and hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. We're finally back after a holiday break, and as Chris Berman would say, let me be the last to wish you and yours a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll have some things that we'll catch up on from while we were away at break throughout the show, but as you heard during the opener, we did it! 50 episodes of The Bridge! We've certainly come a long way since episode one and hope to continue improving in 2017. And the bridge already has a New Year's resolution. Because of some technical difficulties last week, I lost the entire interview that I had with the guest scheduled for last week's show. Thankfully, he was kind enough to join me again this week, but you can imagine some of the different things that were said once that audio was lost. So in the spirit of New Year's resolutions, I'd say that it would be best to not have that happen again for the rest of 2017. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren.
let's wind the clocks back to December for this opening segment. Some college football players might tell you that the social life and the nightlife surrounding their bowl games is actually better than the game itself, at least if the bowl game is in a fun and warm climate. However, one Arkansas football player had a little bit too much fun before his bowl game. It's time for the number one parody news anchor segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. One of the goals for many college football teams is to end their season with a win in a bowl game. Bowl games have their perks, aside from the game on the field. There's the possibility of warm weather or attractive ladies, and also some goodie bags that players can take to their dorms when they become students once again. Such was the case for the teams playing in the Belk Bowl, Virginia Tech and Arkansas. The bowl sponsor, the Belk Department Store, offered players on both teams a $450 gift card and 90 minutes to buy anything in their store in the South Park Mall in Charlotte, North Carolina. Eat your heart out, supermarket sweep. The players also received a fossil watch, but for one Arkansas player, the gift card and watch weren't enough. Senior tight end Jeremy Sprinkle tried to sprinkle in a few more items into his goodie bag and attempted to shoplift eight more items out of the store after the shopping spree had ended. The police were eventually called and released Sprinkle after citing him for unlawful concealment. Here's a list the police provided for what Sprinkle allegedly tried to take. A black Ralph Lauren shirt blue striped classic fit boxers, two collared shirts, Nike black crew socks, another black t-shirt, two wallets, and a partridge in a pear tree. The eight items were worth an additional $260. The Arkansas Athletic Department announced the suspension of Sprinkle just two hours before kickoff but a press release from the Razorbacks head coach said the team knew the suspension was coming. As part of his statement in the release, coach Brett Bielema said, and I quote, we have standards within our family that must be upheld on a daily basis. And unfortunately, Jeremy failed to do that last week, end quote. Sprinkles sprinkled in 33 catches and four touchdowns in his senior season, his first as a starter, and is also the Arkansas career touchdown leader for a tight end with 11. Before the attempted theft, Sprinkle was ranked as the number seven tight end available in the NFL draft. In the actual game on December 29th, Arkansas rolled to a 24-0 lead at the half. Teams trailing by 24 points at the half this season were 0-102. However, some of the Razorbacks players must have remembered that they wouldn't be receiving some belated Christmas gifts from Sprinkle. Virginia Tech won the game 35-24. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News.
Let's take a quick break to pay off those holiday credit card bills. When we come back, we'll meet the backup quarterback who held the weight of the Raiders' playoff hopes on his shoulders and talk some college football and NFL playoffs with this week's guest. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. When Oakland Raiders quarterback David Carr broke his leg in week 16, the hearts of most Raiders fans were also broken in the process. The Raiders went from possible Super Bowl contenders to having to survive their playoff matchup with the Houston Texans with their backup quarterback. Here's this week's edition of, wait, who? Oakland Raiders fans have to be thrilled that David Carr has had more success in his young career than his older brother did for his entire career. But a broken leg sent Oakland's gunslinger to the sidelines for Week 17, and the Raiders instead trotted out their favorite backup quarterback onto the field for the season finale, Matt McGloin. Wait. Who? Matt McGloin, the pride of West Scranton and a three-star athlete with the Invaders, went on to star under center at Penn State University. McGloin entered as a walk-on, and eventually got his first start at quarterback as a sophomore. He made history the following week, throwing four touchdowns and rallying the Nittany Lions from a 21-point deficit to beat Northwestern for Joe Paterno's 400th career victory. As a senior under new head coach Bill O'Brien, McGloin surpassed Ariel Clark's career record for touchdown passes in Penn State history with 45, and also set the single-season passing yards and completions record. And for you locals in northeastern Pennsylvania, the Penn State Worthington campus named its baseball field in McGloin's honor. McGloin was not drafted in the 2013 NFL Draft. But he was signed as an undrafted free agent by the Oakland Raiders that year. He debuted as the Raiders' starting quarterback on November 17, throwing three touchdowns to lead the Raiders to a 28-23 victory over the Houston Texans. McGloin's 221 passing yards per game is second only to Jake Delhomme in NFL history for an undrafted rookie. He's been the backup to Carr ever since, but the Raiders have made a strong effort to make sure he stayed around. Maybe they like his grit. Maybe they like redheads. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's Maybelline. He made his first start since 2013 to close out this season, completing 6 of 11 passes for 21 yards before suffering a shoulder injury and was replaced by Connor Cook but he was okay to go for the Texans game. I mean, I didn't actually watch the game. I made sure that's when I scheduled my dinner plans for Saturday night. Wait. What's that? Connor Cook started in the place of McGloin in the AFC wildcard game? Wait. Who? Connor Cook was a backup for most of his freshman season with the Michigan State Spartans but did help lead the team to victory in the prestigious Buffalo Wild Wings Bowl is 2012. 
he again took over as starter the next year, eventually leading the Spartans to a victory over the Ohio State Buckeyes in the Big Ten Championship game, then a win over Stanford in the 2014 Rose Bowl. As a junior, Cook won the Cotton Bowl over Baylor, then won another Big Ten Championship as a senior by beating Iowa. Cook closed out his career with a disappointing 38-0 loss to Alabama in the college football playoff in 2015. For his career, he holds the school record for passing yards. Cook was highly touted in the 2016 draft, eventually drafted by the Oakland Raiders in the fourth round as the seventh quarterback chosen in that draft. He signed with the Raiders for four years for almost $3 million. He made his NFL debut after the injury to McLaurin in Week 17, completing 14 of 21 passes for 150 yards and one touchdown, one interception, and a couple of fumbles in the 24-6 loss to Denver. Cook then got the first start of his NFL career when the Raiders played at the Houston Texans in the AFC Wild Card game. He became the first quarterback in the Super Bowl era to make his first career start in a playoff game. No pressure to Connor. Only all of Oakland was counting on him to win the Raiders' first playoff game since 2002. Unfortunately for both parties, Cook struggled mightily. He completed just 18 of his 45 passes for 141 yards. He did manage to toss a garbage-time touchdown in the fourth quarter, but also had three interceptions in the 27-14 loss. If anything, at least Cook is his resolution for this new year. Try not to be that bad ever again. Who can make you feel better about giving Brock Osweiler all that money during the AFC wildcard game? Connor Cook. That's who. Those poor, poor fans of Raider Nation. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at any time at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know... Who is your Super Bowl favorite and why? And to discuss that a little further, let's get into our discussion with this week's guest. We had the pleasure of chatting to Mark Schofield. He is the co-founder and writer for Inside the Pylon, a website that offers some incredible analysis for both college football and the NFL. He's got a pretty interesting story going from the life of a lawyer to the life of covering football full time. So you'll get to hear about how he decided to pursue what he's got going on now. We'll also recap Clemson's win over Alabama in the college football national championship game and run down this weekend's matches in the NFL playoffs. 
You can follow Mark on Twitter. He's at Mark Schofield. That's Mark Common Spelling, S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. And also follow his works at InsideThePylon.com or through their Twitter at ITPylon. Many thanks for Mark for deciding to do this once again. The second time around was even better than the first. So without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Mark Schofield. He's a writer for Inside the Pylon, which offers a treasure trove of football analysis for the NFL and college football. Mark, thanks for joining the show. How are you? Good, John. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to get into some of the things that you're up to before we get into the National Football League and college football and start off by just getting you to tell us how you went from studying law to now studying football. Yeah, that's a question I get a lot, probably not a surprise, but I was a practicing lawyer here in the D.C. area for about 10 years um, doing, you know, different types of civil litigation and just basically got kind of burnt out on it after doing it for that period of time and handling the kinds of cases that I was handling. And so, you know, having played football starting when I was nine all the way through college, you know, writing about football, studying football, uh, breaking down film, it's always been you know, a passion of mine. And then, you know, sort of inside the pylon was born years ago on Sun Horn, which is a Red Sox message board. There's a football area of that website and guys like myself and guys that you see on ITP like Chuck Zotta and David Archibald, we were all members over there and we were doing stuff like you see on inside the pylon for years over there, breaking down plays and schemes and things like that. And so Almost three years ago, we had the idea that, you know, why don't we try to make something out of what we're doing, try to create our own site. And that's how it kind of broke out. I was anxious to get out of the practice of law and looking for something else to do and had this passion for writing about football and sort of teaching the game to people. And that's how ITP was born. As the co-owner and one of the main lead writers for Inside the Pylon and doing some work for some of their podcasts, what would you say are some of the main things that the site offers and what some of your biggest responsibilities are for them? Yeah, I mean, basically what we're trying to do, we're trying to educate people about all the different layers of football, whether it's, you know, stuff on the field, you know, from the break into the huddle to the end of the play, all the different layers and complexities of a single football play and breaking that stuff down to off the field stuff, whether it's draft evaluation, whether it's salary cap considerations, draft capital, things like that. We really want readers to walk away having learned something. We often joke that, you know, we want people to be the smartest person in the room when they watch a football game, when they're talking about football with their friends or family, you know, whether it's watching a play and recognizing a coverage or talking about the draft and talking about scheme fit and how some players might project better for a West Coast offense as a quarterback as opposed to a Bruce Arians, Eric Coriel down the field passing game as a quarterback. And so we're really trying to, you know, have people come to the site, learn something, and take away something from it that they can use, you know, whether it's playing fantasy football or studying the game themselves. In terms of the hats that I wear at ITP, you know, I wear a bunch. I mean, there are some days where, you know, I could get up in the morning like I did today, um, get the kids to school, come back to home, start working, produce a podcast or two. We've got a couple of different podcasts that we put out at ITP, do some video work on some of the stuff that I'm doing. I just finished a piece on Joshua Dobbs, who's one of the Tennessee quarterbacks, um, headed to the Senior Bowl. 
Um, then do some editing for other pieces. All our stuff goes through editing, so we make sure that it's as good as it can be before it gets up on the site. And then doing some production work, maybe at the end of the day, getting pieces ready to go the next morning. And so, you know, I wear a bunch of different hats at IT people. We all kind of do that. We're all writers. We all help to edit. We all bounce ideas off of each other, help people study the game if they've got questions on a certain play before they write something. And so, you know, the, the days are long, but it's great stuff, and I just love the chance to talk about football all the time. So along with doing that, you're also contributing as the wide receiver and tight end person for Bleacher Report's NFL 1000, which ranks every player each week of the season, which means I guess it's safe to say that this football thing is kind of a year-round gig, right? Yeah, I mean, between you know the, the work that I'm doing for Bleacher Report's NFL 1000 project, which is a, it's a great program that and project that they put into place under you know the leadership of both Doug Farrar came over to help run this as well as Ian Kenyon at Bleacher Report. You know, what we're really trying to do is we've got a team of scouts that look at every game, every snap each week and grade the tape um, based on the trades for a specific position. As you mentioned, John, I do wide receivers and tight ends. I started on the NFC side and flipped midseason to AFC. So we can try to like balance out the grades as best as we can. Because guys have different things when they're looking at tape that they look for at each position. But what we're really trying to do is dive into the tape show our work as best as we can. We do a scouter notebook each week. I've done some videos where I walk people through plays that I've broken down and show you as the play develops what I'm seeing on tape. And so we really try to show the work and tell people that, you know, this is what we're seeing. This is how we're evaluating these players. You know, it's just one other piece of content that gets out there that people can read, that they can digest and that can take something away from. And so it is a year-round thing with that, with the inside the pylon work as well, with the, the draft coverage that we do. Did some work as well for the Washington Post this season, which was a lot of fun. So, you know, football is a year-round thing now. I mean, it doesn't, it never ends between the draft and preseason. It's free agency. It's a 24-7, 365 kind of deal. We know in sports, nothing quite circles the wagons quite like the National Football League. But before That's getting so into that... We can hit on some college football and going big picture first and even what we saw on Monday night might help with this answer. Are you a fan of the current setup for the national championship in having four teams decide who will take home that title? I think we're getting closer. Um, you know, the, the the four team semifinal games with the national championship decided on the field. I think it's close to ideal. I really do think that an A-team playoff is where we need to go. I think that will generate an incredible amount of excitement, opportunity for you know players from eight teams to be on sort of the national stage like that. Truly decided on the field, you know. And looking at this year, I mean, you have some teams that are on the outside looking in. Um, Penn State, USC, you know, could make a case for Michigan as well that you know could have been invited to an A-team playoff. They weren't, you know, and and. You know, I, I think that's where we kind of need to go. Right. And I think in general, those games would generate even more interest than those couple of bowls already do, because we know there are several of them offered. And while it's definitely not as easy to make a bowl as it might be for teams to make the NCAA tournament college basketball, it is easier for them to qualify than it has been in the past. And unless you're in an office pool or a gambler, many of those early bowl games sort of fly under the radar until some of those more popular ones come around and obviously the three played in the college football playoff is there an easy answer to maybe draw more interest into the bowl games would it be making it that 18 playoff and having those games mean a little bit more 
I mean, I think an eight-team playoff kind of starts to really generate excitement for those last rounds of like those New Year's Eve, New Year's Day type of bowls. As far as the earlier stuff, you know, an idea that has kind of been kicking around in my head is make those games almost more accessible, not just to fans, but to the draft evaluation community. I mean, you see, for example, the Senior Bowl run by Phil Savage. It's going to happen later January down in Mobile, Alabama. Phil has done a great job in sort of promoting the Senior Bowl. And one of the things that he does is he allows people from independent websites, such as Inside the Pylon and even other smaller sites, to apply for press credentials, to get press credentials, so they can go down there and do some evaluation work so they can, you know, study the players that are in the senior bowl that are looking to be drafted by NFL teams so they can get down there. They can meet with these players. They can meet with coaches. They can do on-site work, create some content. It generates buzz for the senior bowl, but it gets people involved. It gets people excited about it. And you've seen a renewed interest in the senior bowl. I think some of the smaller bowls might be wise to sort of implement a similar model. You know, a couple of last year was I, applied for credentials to the military bowl. It's near me in Annapolis and was denied. It's handled by, you know, different teams each year, depending on what teams make the bowls. But if they open that process up a little bit more, you might see people that are doing sort of draft evaluation work, going to these games to get a view of prospects live in advance for the upcoming draft, because the draft really has become sort of the driving force for a lot of football coverage, you know, started in, you know, really it's year round, but really started in say, you know, November, December, people start to get cranked up for it because as teams start to falter in the NFL and they start to look towards next year, their fan bases start to get geared up for it. And with the parity that you see in the NFL, teams think that they're just one good draft class away from making a run. And so if you bring that sort of draft evaluation world into some of these lower bowls, I think you generate excitement for those as well, because some of these earlier bowls, they happen like early, mid-December. A lot of people that are watching them, that are talking about them on Twitter, they're watching for draft prospects more than anything else. So hitting on the national championship game, I just wanted to clear the air first and foremost. When we spoke last week, you had Clemson not only covering the six and a half, but winning the game outright. So I'm sorry to the listeners who made their gambling picks based on this show, but what was Clemson able to do to slay the beast of Alabama and get its revenge in a rematch of last year's title game? Yeah, I mean, they were able to do a couple of things on both sides of the ball. When Alabama was on offense, I think, you know, early in the game and, you know, a couple of plays late in the game, Steve Sarkeesian did a really good job of play calm. But there were a couple of drives where they really focused on the passing game. I think, you know, mid to late third quarter, a couple early in the fourth quarter drives where they went, you know, three plays in the air when they were moving the ball really well on the ground. And, you know, there were so many ways to watch this game that ESPN put out there. They do a great job the past couple of years and how they produce the national championship game. And I watched the coaches film room. If you haven't watched that, you can probably find it online and watch the game, rewatch it that way. They had six college football coaches sort of watching the game live with the all 22 tape. And a lot of these guys were saying, look, just run the ball with Scarborough, run it with number nine because they had the ground game going, but they got away from that at times and it allowed Clemson to sort of get back into the game. Uh, ben Goldware, Clemson's linebacker, um, fantastic college football player, great linebacker, diagnosed a lot of plays as well for that Clemson defense. When Clemson had the football, they were able, using motion and a couple of different ways of shifts, to figure out about, I'd say, midway, late first quarter, 
how Alabama was rotating coverage in the secondary. Once they figured that out, their passing game got going. They didn't do a lot of on the run, but they started to figure out some different ways that they could attack the passing game. They went to their sort of empty divide smash concept where they go empty, nobody in the backfield but for Watson. They run double smash concepts to the outside with leg it up the seam. They were able to make some plays that way. And Rayleigh, they got the they let number four away for them. Um, you know, as you said, I had picked Clemson. I had picked it here on your show with you. I'd also picked it on our Pilot on You podcast done by Jeff Fairer and Shane Alexander, which is a great college football podcast people can check out. And even just inside the pylon on our Slack channel before the game, I said, look, it's Clemson 28, Alabama 24. That was the final score I predicted. And the reason I gave for it was Deshaun Watson because he was basically the tipping point in that game, sort of. You look at those teams and how they matched up. The deciding factor was the play at the quarterback position. Down the stretch, number four showed why he's not only probably the top quarterback in college, but why I think he's the top draft prospect at that position. You mentioned last week on Twitter that your bio has you pegged as having a quarterback bias, and Deshaun Watson's draft stock definitely skyrocketed after this game and I thought it was interesting that going in everybody was talking about Alabama's defense and how difficult they would be but it seemed like Clemson's game plan was to just go right at them they almost ran a hundred total plays on the night getting into Deshaun Watson I think now he's really put himself above and beyond as one of the top guys coming out for next year's draft, and you even mentioned that you have him ranked as the number one quarterback. What do you see in him that makes him at that level? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of different traits that you can look at with Sean Watson and kind of separate him from the pack. I mean, you look at his ability to diagnose and win plays before the ball is snapped. I think he does that as well as anybody in this draft class because he has a good understanding of defensive scheme, defensive coverage, and leverage that he sees from defenders pre-snap. And so, you know, people sort of peg Watson as a guy that runs sort of a one-read scheme, but he always throws to his first read. Well, it might look that way on tape, but what, what really happens is you go through Clemson's playbook is, you know, they get the defense into a – a scheme and into a coverage and then he knows where to go with the football based on what they're doing so he has to diagnose and react to what the defense shows in pre-snap and so a lot of what looks like a one read throw it's because he's gone through some progressions in his mind before the ball is even snapped Watson also does a great job right as the ball is snapped and diagnosing coverage as well, making sure that the coverage that he thought it was pre-snap is really what they're going to be in post-snap. Alabama really does a good job of rotating coverage at the snap and showing you one look and rotating to something else, showing you, say, cover two, and then going to you know, man-free or something like that. And there were some plays that you can see Monday night where Watson did a great job of flashing to his read safety, that free safety, seeing what he does, and then getting the football out to the right receiver based on the coverage that they roll it to. He's also a very athletic quarterback. We saw a ton of that Monday night where he can make things happen with his feet. One of the things he'll have to clean up in the NFL is knowing where to go with the football when he does decide to leave the pocket. There were some times where he dropped his eyes, felt the rush a little bit more, and sort of ran into pressure instead of running away from it. That can usually work against some teams. doesn't work that well against Alabama and their defensive front, and it won't work on Sunday. So that's something he'll have to work on a bit. It's his you know, feel for the pocket and pocket presence. He has the arm to make all the NFL throws. I mean, you saw some of the throws he made Monday night. Uh, one that sticks in my mind is a throw that he made to Leggett on that final drive on sort of a slot fade route towards the sideline where he gets it out before the Leggett's even turned to look for the football and puts it in on a line to about that 20, 25-yard area down the field, which is something 
NFL scouts look for. Can you drive that ball 25 yards down the field into a tight throw window? So Watson can do that. And I think, you know, it's, it's easy to say he wins. It's easy to point to quarterback wins as something. But that matters. When you've got a guy that, you know, in two games against Alabama and two national championships just thrown for something like seven touchdowns, one interception, and basically had, you know, a national championship last year that they lost near the end of that game, and then pulls it out this year. I mean, that counts for something. And so when you put the body of work together and when you take into effect now, if he's got an opportunity to go down to Mobile for the Senior Bowl, it's up in the air whether he'll do that or not. But it has this draft process unfolds for him. He has a chance now to meet with teams, meet with coaches, sort of build that relationship with him. It just takes one team to fall in love with a guy. And so I think Deshaun Watson has a great opportunity going forward to you know, get that one team that falls in love with him, maybe more than one. But I, I really think with the traits that we see on the field, the stuff that he does extremely well, and from everything that I've read about him off the field, I think this is kind of the complete package type of player. Before we get into discussing the National Football League, let's take a quick break to pay off the holiday credit card bills. When we come back, Mark will recap NFL Wild Card Weekend and break down some of the divisional games we have coming up this weekend and who he thinks will reach Super Bowl 51. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Switching gears to the NFL, wild card weekend, one of the most lopsided opening rounds in recent memory with the four home teams winning pretty favorably, and we can hit on what everyone's talking about first, the Giants and Packers game, but we won't hit on going to Miami on a boat and having that be the reason why the Giants lost. Right. They had several opportunities to take control of the game early, but as we remember, some key drops, they couldn't really recover from that and it was the Packers that turned things around they got off to a really slow start but Aaron Rodgers was able to do his thing and take over that game should we be more impressed with what Green Bay was able to do and and look like we expect them to look like or more disappointed with the Giants and and having another season come to an end like this I think it's more a matter of being impressed with what the Packers were able to do I mean you know winning a playoff game is tough even if you're at home um, you're going up against a, a pretty good opponent, um, somebody that's you know been through a season and gotten to that point, so that they're, you know that you're facing a talented team on the other side of the ball. And you know what we've seen from Aaron Rodgers, you know obviously down the stretch, but even I'd say from this entire season is, you know, a quarterback playing at a very high level, and he's an elite quarterback today. If you're a defense, you typically in this day and age you're, you're defended in the secondary for two, maybe three seconds. Guys, teams want to have the quarterback get the ball into his hands and out of his hands as fast as he can. When you're going up against Aaron Rodgers, you've got to defend for four, five, six, sometimes even eight seconds into a play because he does such a great job buying time with his feet, sliding around in the pocket, and if the route structure isn't there immediately, guys, they run the scramble drill effectively well. And so it's an eternity when you're, you know, a cornerback trying to guard a defender for five, six, seven seconds into a play, things break down. I mean, you look at their Week 17 victory against Detroit. Matt Bowen was on Twitter, a former defensive back, now just some great work for ESPN, formerly a bleach report. You know, that touchdown to Geronimo Allison, they pretty much kind of put that game away. That was eight seconds into the play, almost nine seconds, like 8.78 seconds. 
And as Matt Bowen said, he's like, look, you are going to get a defensive breakdown in the secondary. You just simply can't expect guys to, be co- to cover defenders, cover receivers that long. And that's something that, you know, going into this game against Dallas, Dallas is a very good secondary. I think Pro Football Focus rated them their number one overall secondary. They're going to get tested this weekend with that scramble drill and Aaron Rodgers. Dealing with the Cowboys, you mentioned you were a little low on Dak Prescott last week coming out of college, and we know he's been able to have an incredible season, really, for getting thrust under the spotlight. He does, of course, have a stud rookie running back and weapons with his receiving core and offensive line. What do you think has made the Dallas offense so good? If it's more Dak, if it's more Ezekiel Elliott, if it's more the offensive line, or it's really just been a great combination of all three? I mean, I think it's almost a perfect storm of things coming together at the right time and the right place for our team. I mean, this is a great offensive line, and I think you have to start there with the work that they've done up front. Um, they were a good offensive line last year. They've been better this year. Then you add Ezekiel Elliott, who's a complete running back, can do things in the run game, both running power and zone schemes. You showed that at Ohio State. That's why he was, you know, typically thought of as you know the most complete back coming out of college last year he can stay on the field in third down he's pretty good in, he's i'd say very good in pass protection as well he's good in the screen game so now you've got a good offensive line you've got the running back that can give you sort of a variety of looks behind that offensive line you've got a pretty good receiving core i mean does Bryant still a threat every time he goes into a pattern there might not be anybody better than him at sort of that back shoulder throw you've got williams on the other side who's a good piece to that offense. You've obviously got Jason Witten, who's been a third down blanket for Cowboys quarterbacks for years now. And Cole Beasley is somebody that you know, really caught my eye in doing that Bleacher Report NFL 1000 work, both looking at his tape from last year to get ready for this season, as well as early in this year. Shifty slot receiver, one of those guys that you almost see him open on almost every single place, always available for the quarterback. So now you've got core offensive line, you've got the running back in place, you've got some good components in the receiving core. Now you add to that a quarterback. You mentioned that I was down on Dak, and that's totally true. I could probably take the yell on that, like I think a lot of people do, because not that many people were really high on him coming out of Mississippi State, and there's all sorts of work that could be done and what we missed with him um, from me. And what I looked at, there was some ball placement and accuracy concerns that I saw on his tape. And then again, last year down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl, I still had those concerns. And, you know, one of those things that's tough to scheme around is, you know, ball placement. If a quarterback can't put the ball where it's supposed to be on a given play or in a given route structure, it's hard for that play to succeed. And so for me, those were some concerns that I had that I couldn't quite get over. And I didn't see them coming into coming into focus quickly enough for him. But all credit to Dak Prescott. He did a heck of a job. He fixed some things mechanically, number one. And number two, and this is sort of get into that idea of context, and when you look at a player's tape, he's now behind a great, that great offensive line. And so when you're more comfortable back there and you have more time to diagnose things, you can make some better throws. And so putting that all together, you have what I, like I said, the perfect storm. You've got you know, a rookie quarterback who's in a good situation, who's done some things to make himself a better player. So full credit to him. And he's had an incredible season. He should easily been offensive rookie of the rookie of the year and should get some votes for MVP, I think. Um, you had the rookie running back and Ezekiel Elliott, who gives you a complete look at that position. Good offensive line, some great pieces in the receiving core. And it's just been a great sort of mix of things coming together for that offense, all at the right place in the right time. 
What do you think we'll see in that game Sunday? Is it going to come down to which team is able to take the early control and then sort of ride that out for the rest of the game? I think if that happens with Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers would love to be able to throw the ball the way he was able to do in the wild card game, whereas Dallas could take some more time, run the football like they've been doing all year, and really just keep Aaron Rodgers off the field. Is that sort of where both teams might go to try to win that game on Sunday? Yeah, John, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, what, what it comes down to for me is the ability of Dallas to sort of control this game at the line of scrimmage when they have the football. And, you know, I think with that offensive line, they'll be able to do that. They'll be able to put together some, you know, 10, 11, 12 play drives that, you know, Aaron Rodgers can beat you so many different ways, but he can't beat you if he's holding his helmet on the sidelines. And if you put together some 12, 13 play drives and take, you know, eight, nine minutes off the clock, you know, you're going to keep them on the sidelines, keep that offense off the field, keep your defense fresh as well. And so when Green Bay does have the ball, those guys in the secondaries, if they're asked to defend five, six, seven seconds into a play, they've got fresh legs and aren't tired doing it. And so I think that's the key to this game. If Dallas does what you expect them to do, move the ball on the ground, control the clock, bend the will of that Green Bay defense, that's going to tell the story of this game. And I think they're, they'll be able to do that. In the other NFC matchup between the Seahawks and the Falcons, will this be the year that Matt Ryan finally gets that monkey off his back and proves to us, the fans, and his team that he might be worthy of discussion as one of the best quarterbacks in the game? I mean, I think his season to date has almost proved that already. Uh, as far as a monkey on his back, I would say that if you look at his numbers and what he's put together with that Atlanta offense, look at his ability to keep that offense on track when Julio Jones wasn't on the field. You know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, you know, he had a good year, but look, he's playing with Julio Jones, one of the best receivers in the game. Well, his numbers were just as good when Julio was injured. And so you look at what that Atlanta offense has done under his direction. I think that he deserves definitely some consideration for MVP. And I think that going into this game, you know, Seattle had to play a, you know, home playoff game last weekend. Now they're going to make the trip East. It's usually tough for those West Coast teams to come east. Um, I, I think Atlanta's going to be able to take care of that game. And I, I look to Matt Ryan to have a good game against the Seattle defense. It's not that Seattle defense from a few years ago that was really able to control offenses and to limit offenses the ability of an offense to make plays in the passing game. You've lost Earl Thomas. They're a bit banged up. And so I think that you know, to your point that Matt Ryan and the Atlanta Falcons, they do come out of this with a win, setting up what I think is a great matchup in the NFC Championship game between Dallas and Atlanta. I think that's the two best teams in the NFC, I think, and that will be a, a great matchup. We don't really need to hit on the Patriots and Texans game. If anything, that Saturday night is probably a good time to schedule dinner plans and get the family obligations out of the way before the other games come around for this weekend. But sticking in the AFC Pittsburgh, of course, did its thing against Miami and now has to travel to a very difficult stadium in Arrowhead to play the Chiefs. Big Ben might be a little gimpy for that game after hurting his foot a little bit, but he's obviously going to play and probably won't show much signs because he's used to doing that. What do you think are the biggest keys for both these teams going into that game and who will come out on top? I mean, this is a really interesting matchup on paper. It's probably the game I'm most excited to see this weekend. When you look at Kansas City and the way they can attack a defense in a number of different ways. I mean, the first way they can do that, and this is actually something I'm working on for Bleacher Report in our Scouter Notebook this week's The NFL 1000 Project, 
the way they can manufacture explosive plays with both with two vastly different players in Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey. We can start with Kelsey and that tight end who uh, he was by our grade and the best tight end in the league this year. He's just a matchup nightmare for defense, very similar to, you know, Rob Gronkowski and how he's a matchup nightmare, but in a, in a slightly different way. You get him in Y-ISO, get him in a three-by-one formation where he's the only guy on his side of the formation, the only eligible receiver. And then you force the defense to make a decision. Did they put a cornerback on him? If so, Kelsey's got the frame and the body to sort of just box out a guy on, say, a hitch route or a curl route and get you an easy five yards or, or more, given his ability after the catch. If you put a linebacker up there, well, Travis Kelsey is going to be able to run circles around most linebackers in the man coverage situation because he's a very good route runner. Get him on crossing routes or pivot routes. If you put a safety on him, probably the same sort of situation as with a linebacker. He's going to be able to outrun that person on him most, if not all, routes. And so that's one way you can do that. And what I'd look for them to do is to add a different component to that put Tyreek Hill in the backfield on the same side of the formation. Now, as if you're a defense, you've got a problem because you've got probably their two most explosive players on one side of the field, but yet on the backside, you've got a numbers disadvantage. If you overload that Kelsey and Hill side of the formation, you're leaving some one-on-one opportunities for guys like Wilson and Macklin and Conley on the other side of the formation. So Kansas City is going to give Pittsburgh a number of different looks, hopefully to get some explosive plays for them from Hill, from Kelsey, and if not, some stuff on the backside. So I'd look for something like that from Kansas City when they have the ball. Pittsburgh, they can beat you in different ways as well, but it's, it's a little different. They have Le'Veon Bell, arguably the most patient running back I've seen in a long time. And when you're studying the Pittsburgh offense and the guys up front, the offensive line, the tight ends that have to block for you talk about defenders having to defend for a long time in the scramble drill against Aaron Rodgers. These guys get a block for a long time because Bell is so patient picking his spots as he works towards the line of scrimmage when he has the ball in his hands. That's one thing to look for. They can spread you out. They can go empty and go five wide as well because Bell's a pretty good receiver out of the backfield. So they can do that, or they can just go slow it down. They can go two tight ends and run sort of a counter move, counter tray action with Bell with the ball in his hands. And so it's, you know, two different teams that can attack you in different ways. And so it's going to be a fascinating chess match. Where I really think it comes down, though, is Arrowhead's a tough place to play. Pittsburgh might be a little banged up. That was a pretty physical game against Miami. Obviously, we had Roethlisberger in the walking boot. Houston had some time to heal up. Justin Houston should be back. That defense should be able to get after Roethlisberger. And if he's banged up in any way, if he's limited in terms of his mobility, that might be the difference. And so it's a fascinating game to watch on paper. I'm really excited to see it. But I do sort of lean towards taking Kansas City in this game. I'll end this discussion with you the same way we did last week. Who do you think will move on to Super Bowl 51? And then who will be the team that lifts up that Lombardi trophy? I mean, that, that, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I really think that we're going to see, you know, I really think we're going to see, you know, Dallas, Atlanta in the NFC Championship game and, you know, Kansas City, New England in the AFC Championship game, which was set up like, you know, two great conference championship games. I think coming out of that, you're looking at a Dallas, New England Super Bowl. I, I do think that those are the two best teams in the league. I know there's an argument in a potential KF, Kansas City, um, New England matchup that, you know, New England in terms of the quarterbacks that they have faced this year, they haven't faced really that many stiff tests for the quarterback position, say for Russell Wilson, and they lost that game at home. And so there's a, a thought that, you know, if they're in a matchup against Alex Smith and explosive offense with guys like Kelsey and Hill, 
you know, maybe they have a bit of a tough time, and that's true, but I think they'll still have enough to get over that hump. So in that potential Dallas-New England game, you know, I, as I mentioned to you, John, last week, you probably, the listeners have probably gleaned it from the accent. I'm from the Boston area. I am, at my core, a Patriots fan. And I think when you give... <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah, I mean, look, I left the Boston area, gosh, 20 years ago or so, and I, and I still can't shake the accent, so I've come to just accept it and own it and kind of embrace it. Um, but I think, you know, getting back to that potential Dallas-New England game, you give Bill Belichick, you know, enough time to scheme for a matchup, he's going to come up with some answers. And what he would like to do, and he always tries to do this, is take away what you do best. And so what he would do, probably stack the box, try to take away that run game, try to limit the, you know, those eight, nine, ten play drives, and put it on the shoulders of Dak Prescott and say, look, if you're really the rookie quarterback that everybody thinks you are, go win a Super Bowl because I'm going to put eight, nine guys in the box and force you to put the ball down the field. And, you know, that, that would be a fascinating little chess match to watch as well. But I think, you know, right sitting here right now, um, I, I do think that's where we're headed to sort of Dallas and England game, which would be one, I think, for the ages. Mark, it's been a great time catching up with you once again. Thanks so much for your time. Your insight for what's been going on in college football and the NFL is fantastic in helping us break down the national championship, the playoffs as well. I appreciate the private session we got last week. And since your eyes will be glued to football for almost all of the year, I'm sure maybe we can catch up down the road as long as I have my recorders working and we're good to go on that end. And we could talk a little bit more about what's going on in football. But continued success with all the work you've been doing with Inside the Pylon and Beyond. And thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me. Love coming on. Um, All the best to you as well. Um, Keep crushing it and happy to come on anytime. Now I'd like to close out the show with a brand new segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or a coach might have meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. Let's kick this off with Mariah Carey's New Year's Eve performance to ring in 2017. After some audio troubles to start her performance, America's favorite 90s diva decided that she had had enough and spent the rest of the song that was currently playing just walking around the stage, complaining instead of just trying to sing, saying things like, I wish I could have a holiday too. Then closed with a half-assed lip-syncing effort to her last song before finally exiting the stage behind a sea of feathers. I don't think we'll be seeing Mariah in that type of situation in the near future. Next up, the five NFL coaches who were fired either during or at the end of the 2016-2017 season. Rex Ryan of the Bills, Chip Kelly of the 49ers, Gus Bradley of the Jaguars, Mike McCoy of the Chargers, and our dear, dear friend of the show, Jeffrey Fisher of the Los Angeles Rams. Also a good try goes to the 49ers and Bills franchises for still trying to convince their fans to continue to support their teams. 
Bill's GM, Doug Whaley, had no idea that Rex Ryan was going to be fired until the ownership finally told him he was. Then they stuck him at a press conference where he was peppered with questions from reporters asking him why there was a firing, and he had to sit there with his tail between his legs. The Bills, as you might remember, haven't had a coach last longer than four seasons since the 1990s, and we could add Rex Ryan and his brother to that list. And after firing three coaches in three years, the latest in Chip Kelly, who has still had trouble revolutionizing the National Football League like the sports media promised when he came to the NFL. 49ers owner and CEO Jed York said in a press conference that he cares about the team and coaches and GMs should definitely want to go to the 49ers. Sure, Jed. Sure. A good job from Bengals Adam Jones, who dropped his Pac-Man nickname and claimed he had learned from his mischievous ways. He was even named team captain this year, but was recently arrested for first allegedly punching a man and poking him in the eye, then refusing arrest, and then spitting on the nurse who tried to give him blood work at the jail. A good try and good effort from Penn State fans for getting their claims ready that the Nittany Lions were snubbed from the college football playoff after Michigan lost its bowl game and Ohio State was shut out by Clemson in the college football playoff and for their great performance against USC in the Rose Bowl only to later lose the game on a game-winning field goal 52-49. to Good try, good effort for NFL Wild Card Weekend. A year removed from all four teams winning their games, we had the most lopsided point differential since 1995 when all four home teams won by at least 13 points. And lastly, good try, good effort from yours truly, the host of The Bridge for starting off the year 2017 by losing an entire interview and having to redo the first show of the year. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll recap the latest games in the NFL playoffs and preview what we can expect in the championship games. We'll take a look around the NBA 
and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.